welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Pastor Tim, and uh, it is good to be back with you once again in uh, having the privilege to lecture on the Trinity. Just to give you a bit of an overview, if you are new with us here, we have been uh, going through sort of a, a program, a schedule of our uh, Trinitarian uh, lectures here, starting from kind of an introduction on the, uh, on the doctrine of the Trinity through to a, uh, a biblical doctrine of the Trinity. And then now this evening, we will finish our historical um, look at the Trinity by taking a look at uh, the modern era, um, uh, quite a large section of, of history, starting from the Reformation through to a modern controversy. That will be this lecture. And then in the next lecture, we will begin our, uh, our, our two lectures on dogmatics which is then your system, your grammar, your syntax, your vocabulary of how to refer to the Trinity, how to speak and understand the Trinity. Uh, and then we'll be getting into what will probably be, I think, my favorite part of the lectures, which will be seeing the outworkings of the Trinity in creation, in redemption, in last things. And there at that point, then having built the foundation, we're going to start to see how the Trinity affects everything. Everything we do, everything that uh, that God does, um, and uh, and I suspect and hope and believe that it will be very enriching, not only for your personal worship of the Lord, but for even how you view intellectually you view this world that our triune God has made. So we want to cover in this lecture three controversies in the modern era. And we are going to traverse a controversy that occurred um, in the 16th century, another one that occurred in the early 18th century, 
and then a modern controversy. I'm going to spend roughly 10 minutes on the first two. So I'll be moving quite quickly. And then because we want to have enough time to deal with what is a modern controversy currently um, and be able to have enough time to do that some justice. We start with the uh, with John Calvin, who, of course, is one of the um, predominating reformers after, of course, Martin Luther himself. John Calvin was really the systematician of the Reformation. Uh, Luther was the, <laughs> he was the vanguard. He was the, he was the hammer of God. <laughs> and, uh, and, and by all means, he was a, a good theologian. Um, but Calvin really was the systematician of, of the Reformation. And, uh, and what he and his writings, both his commentaries and his institutes, uh, have served as, for, for hundreds of years, as a bulwark of Christian theology. Uh, what many people are unaware of, however, is that he was involved in Trinitarian controversies throughout most of his ministry. And um, really on two angles, two fronts. The one front was against anti-Trinitarians, who uh, mostly later in his life, but some earlier on his, in his life as well. And you need to understand that the, the time of the Reformation in the casting off of the dogma and the traditions that surrounded and had grown up around the Roman Catholic Church, that there was um, a time of, of upheaval in society, in theology, in thinking about, about God and his world. And this affected all sorts of things. And, and it, yeah, there was, there's many people who, like, like the Anabaptists, um, who had some, you know, they had some emphases that was, that was good, um, but they also had some tendencies that were incorrect as far as their theology. And, and there, were, there were just some anti-Trinitarians at that time. As, you know, all of a sudden we look at everything we have believed and we're rejecting certain aspects of the dogma that's handed down to us. Now, all of a sudden, uh, there's, a, there's a shaking of what we believe. And, and okay, what do we really believe about the Trinity? Do we, you know, do we believe in what was handed down to us by, uh, say, for instance, um, Thomas Aquinas, who was so important in Roman Catholic theology? And um, I don't know how much I touched on this after I try to remember from, from last week. But, uh, you know, Aquinas, in some ways, was a very good theologian. But, of course, uh, in some other ways, he continued the traditions that do stem back further than the medievals, further back than what we would call sort of the Roman Catholic Church into the early church fathers. And some of these things kind of reached their fruition uh, in the time of, um, yeah, within the medieval age, within the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, there was desperate need, desperate need for Reformation. Um, we've got Reformation Day coming up soon. We should heartily rejoice uh, in, in the Reformation. So Calvin um, had some controversies around the Trinity and against anti-Trinitarians and, and holding forth the truth of the doctrine of the Trinity in Scripture. But he also had a controversy against more conventional, we can say, I'll, I'll have to, I'll use that word for now, we'll have to tease out what that means, but more conventional uh, Trinitarian theologians 
who felt that at least one aspect of Calvin's doctrine of the Trinity was sub-Nicene. It, it was not proper Trinitarian um, doctrine. So just to give you a little bit of background about how this controversy came to the, came to the forefront, um, in 1537, there was a minister by the name of Pierre Caroline, um, who was also living, I believe, in Geneva at the same time that Calvin was. That's how, at least how I understand it, at least ministering in that general area. And he was concerned that in the early formation of the confessions of faith of the reformers, including things that John Calvin himself had a hand in, together with some of his compatriots um, and fellow reformers like Farrell, uh, that there was a very light articulation of Trinity in their, in their confessions of faith. And one of the things that Calvin was concerned about is that in this time of Reformation, and moving away from the dogma of the Roman Catholic Church, he had a very pastoral heart about teaching people the practicalities of a personal faith in Christ. And so because of this pastoral concern, at least in the early going, he was not, I don't want to use the word careful, or didn't put a tremendous amount of emphasis on the doctrine of Trinity. Um, that is not to say that Calvin didn't have a doctrine of the Trinity, or that his doctrine of the Trinity was uh, problematic. We'll get into a little bit more if, if there are some, maybe some slight imbalances, perhaps, in Calvin's theology. But there were some people that took note of the fact that, uh, for instance, in their first confession of faith in 1537, that there was no formal exposition of the Trinity. And so, um, Caroline and some others had some concerns, which they brought forward to Calvin and to other ministers in some of their, some of their meetings. And, uh, and, and Calvin, again, he, he wanted to really make certain that the doctrine that they were formulating in this time of, of upheaval and reformation was what was biblical not just what had been handed down by the, you know, by the fathers, um, and particularly one flashpoint was the Athanasian Creed, um, Creed of Athanasius, which is, is a fascinating creed because it's not a creed that came about uh, like the Nicene Creed uh, or its, its subsequent formulation at Constantinople, um, where you, know, you had a bunch of people coming together to make a decision. It's sort of, we're not sure where it kind of came from, but it's a later creed that lays out in, you would say, quite Augustinian fashion, or very systematic, um, in a very systematic way, the doctrine of the Trinity. And, um, and Calvin didn't, he didn't think it was necessary to, to use it. Uh, and when people said, listen, you subscribe to it, he didn't immediately stand up and say, yes, I subscribe to it. Now let's just get on with, you know, the work of, of you know, this pastoral work and, just, you know, I affirm this and this. What he did is, is he, he kind of stated, listen, we need, we need to believe the Bible. And the Bible needs to be our, uh, you know, the groundwork for all that we believe about the Trinity and everything else, the creeds and so forth, so forth they are secondary. And uh, Caroline and some others, they, 
they weren't content with this because what it sounded to them like is that, is that Calvin refused to adhere to the traditional creeds of the church on the Trinity. And so this was the beginning of a protracted controversy. And this controversy escalated, especially around a particular framing of one aspect of Trinitarian doctrine called the self-existence of the Son. Okay? It's called, uh, in some circles, the Othean controversy. Okay? Autotheos, the idea that, that God is God of himself, is self-existent. And the question is, and you can begin to think about this yourself as you interact with it, is the son of himself. And this, this is kind of an irony that he was very Augustinian, and you might even say very scholastic in the fact that he affirmed the, the fact that the son in full equality with the father, that was his interest, making sure that the son was fully equal with the father, he emphasized that the son has the same uh, essence of the father uh, or substance of the father. And so because this substance is a substance that is from itself, the son is then autotheos. He's from himself. Now, Caroline and some of the other uh, reformers didn't like this because what they wanted to emphasize, uh, which is very clear in the creeds, but also in many places in scripture, that the Son is from the Father. Right? So, for instance, he is the image of the invisible God. Exact imprint of his nature. Of God's glory. Um, the Son from the Father. You know, we see this, this kind of articulation in Scripture, and to many people, this formulation of the Son being autotheos seemed to be um, outside of the creeds and, you know, and, and not, at least not the balance of Scripture. So there's, there's controversy over this. Um, this, yeah, this continued throughout much of, of, uh, of Calvin's life, and uh, just to kind of sum up where I think we ought to, what we ought to think about this controversy is that uh, Calvin, Calvin is ultimately correct. He is ultimately correct that the son, because he has fully the divine essence, and because that divine essence is has a deity, it is from itself, self-existent, doesn't rely upon anything else, come from anything else. But because of that, we may say that the Son, you know, in a maybe funny sense, according to his essence, is from himself. Uh, however, I, I tend to think that this is a little bit of a strange way to speak of the Son. And that on balance, the scriptures would lean more into saying that the Son is 
from the Father. And of course, one of the things that Calvin would say was, of course, he's from the Father, but he's from the Father according to his person. But his essence, as he has that divine essence, you need to be able to speak about his person, but also his essence. And of his essence, he is, in a certain sense, from himself. Now, um, I think probably the best way of formulating this idea, and if you want to do some more research on this, or maybe for the one person who wants to do more research on this, <laughs> uh, Brannon Ellis has done some excellent recent historical work on this. And I've just kind of scanned some of his writing on this um, recently. Um, but there's a more historical essay by actually B.B. Warfield on this. Um, probably the more recent work by Brandon Ellis is updates some historical things. Uh, probably eclipses Warfield's work, uh, but even though that was very seminal at the time. I, I think getting back to the way I think we should think about this issue, um, I think it is what we would want to say is that the Son has his self-existence from the Father. Right? That he has his self-existent nature from the Father. There's a sense in which he's self-existent, an important sense, but in a derived way. So, again, you, you start getting into some of these issues, and, and it, it does get a little bit complex, but it's, um, some of these things become quite important. Let's fast forward to an 18th century controversy. And, and in, the, uh, in the late, late 17th century, there was a, a great treatise by a man by the name of George Bull. I actually have, I'm bringing a copy with me here of this. It's, it's a facsimile. You can see all the old English words in it. That's, it takes twice as long to read it. You have to sort of translate as you go. Um, but, but Bishop Bull had this great defense of the, the historical creeds uh, in which he, he just did a phenomenal job of referencing all the early church fathers and in making sure that the, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity was, once, was upheld at this crucial point in history, and maybe crucial in a certain way, maybe even crucial is not quite, quite the right word, but, but what had happened on account of the Reformation, and even John Calvin's, some of, his, some of the outworking of his own doctrine, is that the doctrine of the Trinity was conceived of more as something to receive and believe, but not really to delve into very much, right? And so there was, the, the doctrine of the Trinity was sort of stagnant for some time. Um, and, and George Bull really sort of was one of, the, one of the only writers or theologians within these centuries that, that did a significant work in buttressing, bolstering the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, and there were, like I said, there was anti-Trinitarians um, and Socinians at this time that uh, began to um, cavil against the, you know, the traditional doctrine of the Trinity, or the, uh, in the case of the Socinians, the full deity of the Son. So uh, George Bull had done this great work. Uh, but shortly after writing this, and it's this mon monumental treatise, that there, uh, there were some different things that came up. And, and one of the responses, if not directly to George Bull, but sort of in light of, uh, kind of stemming from it to some degree, 
was a theologian and philosopher by the name of Samuel Clark. Samuel Clark, I believe I'm getting it. Yeah, Samuel Clark. Um, and Clark believed, and, it, and it's interesting trying to, <laughs> trying to trace these through, some of these threads through uh, and connecting some of these controversies. Uh, Samuel Clark believed that, listen, we don't need all these creeds. Um, what's the biblical doctrine? Trinity. And, um, and so he, he had this response called the Scripture Doctrine of the Trinity, which, in which he just kind of surveyed all of the biblical uh, you know, passages that we have and, and formulated it all in, in a way that he felt was, was appropriate and represented Scripture. And, uh, but there was a problem. And what this illustrates, the, the problem of Samuel Clark illustrates, is that there is some danger in throwing off all of the wrestlings and all of the distinctions that have been made historically and just thinking that all we need is this, but not, you know, this plus all the people that God has given to us in the history of Christianity who also cared about this and, and, and formulated things and made strict distinctions and fought, sometimes even giving up their own blood or life to uphold the things that are in it. So again, this is an important aspect even to what we think of in terms of classical, uh, classical education, that we understand that we our thinking, our worldview, it rests on the shoulders of giants. And we don't throw off great thinkers before. If they're wrong, we correct them. But we don't, we don't just start you know, from, from nothing at any stage in our education. And that's the case with theology as well. The tradition does play an important part. Yes, the scriptures is our only infallible rule for faith and practice. That is crucial. But we also do this within a historical uh, perspective. So Samuel Clark, as he put this all together, um, and kind of reacting against George Bull, he, he got some things wrong. He got some things wrong because guess what? It's really hard to completely escape the spirit of your age. This is one of the benefits, of course, to tradition and to relying on others who have gone before you, is that you get the distinctums from that age and those, you know, polemics and those fights and those dialogues that are different than your own. Um, and so one of the challenges, one of the, one of the things that Clark leaned into and got unbalanced was the fact that he conceived of the father as the supreme God. And the son, in some way that was not quite right, as sort of a, a little lesser of God. Now, we have talked about, and I believe it's an important aspect of Trinitarian doctrine, that the father is normatively God. Hopefully that jogs your memory of some things we've covered in the past. By that I mean that the words Father and God in the New Testament are largely interchangeable, and that because the Father is the fount of divinity, and that the Son and the Spirit come from him, the Spirit comes from the Father and the Son, 
that in a normative way, um, you know, when, when the disciples ask Lord Jesus Christ, listen, can you teach us how to pray to God that he says, our Father? God is a father. And I've, I've mentioned, too, that understanding the, how the father is normatively God in, a, in kind of a special or particular way, that also helps to simplify the Trinity for us because we can think of God as father. Uh, so that's helpful. But Clark really emphasized this to a point of aberration, um, seeing the father as God. Not, he wouldn't say above the sun, but in a way that he wanted to uh, almost see the sun as of a lesser rank. Uh, and so one of the ways he would do this is that whenever he would refer to the father, he would often have uh, a, um, an adjective that he would put on the front of it, the supreme father, or the, uh, something like that, that would elevate the father above the son in, uh, I'm going to use the word rank. Now, with a lot of these modern controversies with kind of rank rank Arianism being behind us and far in the past, um, no, of course, it does does still come up. It doesn't come up. But within these Christian circles, if you know some of this doctrine, you rarely get something that sort of rank Arianism. Uh, Clark was actually accused of, and even to this day, he's often called an Arian. I actually don't think he was an Arian. Uh, I, I do think he believed that the son was divine, but how he framed this was entirely problematic. And it, it took a, uh, a man that came after George Bolt, a man by the name of Daniel Waterland, uh, to really point this out and really kind of put Clark in his place, uh, which he did very well in saying, uh, listen, you can't have it both ways. If the son is of lesser rank, that is thereby Arianism. It, it's, it's thereby at least semi-Arianism. Um, and, uh, and really really driving this home. And in fact, Clark was uh, brought before a, a group of, um, of ministers, and he was censured. And he was forced to, to change his beliefs or that he wouldn't teach on these matters anymore, and he actually agreed to do that. So there's, there's um, to this day, you ask different people about Clark and what his views actually were, um, you'll get different, you'll get different views. Uh, what is interesting, though, is that Unitarians, right, who do not believe in the Triune God, um, they will actually often look back to Clark and say, "Listen, here's somebody that we can rely on," and sort of basis for or the, the blooming of our uh, of our doctrine so um, so that was within the beginning of the 18th century so that leaves us with a, a good bit of time to enter into what is a modern controversy and some of the things that we have mentioned already will bear into an understanding of of this modern controversy, and, and hopefully we'll have the time to, uh, to deal with it in, well, as much detail as, as these minutes will allow. Um, one, of the, one of the aspects of the development of, of uh, Trinitarianism that we are almost completely leaping over 
sadly, except for this brief remark, is that um, within the 20th century, there was a, a resurgence of interest in the Trinity, uh, and especially amongst some of the German theologians. Um, and so uh, often these German theologians, one of the things that they would focus on, uh, Karl Barth, probably the best, most well-known, uh, would, they, were, they would view the Trinity from a social perspective. Right, viewing the Trinity, Father, Son. Of course, there you've got some familial language, right? So, can we view the Trinity as a family, um, or as a community of persons? And so, you have some of this social Trinitarianism that creeps up, and this provided some of the groundwork, or at least some of the kind of the fertile field in, in thought on the, Trinity, on the Trinity, in which this modern controversy, which is often abbreviated as EFS, arose. So EFS stands for Eternal Functional Subordination. And this is a, uh, I'll, I'll talk about sort of the beginnings of this controversy, but this is a current controversy. Um, if you are a current Christian pastor that cares at all about theology, you probably ought to have an opinion on this. Uh, it's something that is significant. Um, the, the rise of this controversy came in with a couple of conservative theologians, um, one of whom our new Antioch students will know, Wayne Grudem, Bruce Ware. And this, uh, as the conservative church responded to the rising feminism and egalitarianism within the evangelical church, namely this idea that uh, women can be pastors, for instance, uh, or that there's no distinction between male and female in the church, or in some cases even in families, this idea of, of egalitarianism versus traditionally what would be called complementarianism. The idea that men and women complement each other, but they have differing roles uh, within marriage or within the church. Um, it was within this controversy that some conservative complementarians, I've already mentioned a couple of names, that they drew from the doctrine of the Trinity to make a point which to them seemed kind of self-evident. It seemed like, like a good way to argue, uh, which was that, listen, just as the Father and the Son are ontologically, that means according to their being, uh, of the same rank or value, yet as the Son submits to the Father, functionally, or you could say economically, so too, though men and women are equal in God's sight, yet within, for instance, the church or marriages, there is a functional subordination of women within those limited spheres of, in the case of marriage, husband and wife, or within the church, male elders, pastors. 
Um, so this was being argued in complementarian circles, and I would, I would consider myself a full-fledged complementarian, although I would also want to, I think that sometimes the doctrine of complementarity has not been well explained, has not been, has not been explained with good depth always. Um, nevertheless, I am a staunch complementarian. Um, and, but a, no, a number of people began to point out a couple of problems with this. And the first of which, and, and it genuinely is a problem, uh, is that Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem at the time did not subscribe to the eternal generation. Now, throughout the course of Trinitarian, you know, Trinitarian theology, and I'm not sure where you'd start to trace this back, but even though it was a agreed-upon Nicene doctrine, very clear in the medieval age with the scholastics, at some point, and maybe even starting with Calvin, because Calvin didn't, he didn't emphasize eternal generation. He believed in it, okay? Uh, there are every once in a while, you'll, you might run into somebody who says, oh, Calvin didn't really believe in eternal generation. Now, that's not true, but he didn't emphasize it a great deal. Um, and in fact, D.B. Warfield, who was a great conservative Princeton theologian, great theologian, uh, he came very close to denying eternal generation. He certainly didn't. Uh, he sort of said, ah, it's kind of a bit of a mystery about, you know, how the son is of the father. It's, um, you know, and I think probably in, the, in these cases, the reason is people thought, well, we don't want to go beyond scripture. Maybe it's not clearly revealed in scripture. I think it is. <laughs> I think it is. Um, but uh, so there was this, this ground. It's not as if Rudum and Ware just all of a sudden decided to throw out a key concept of Trinitarian theology that had been agreed upon throughout you know, all of history. Um, there was some historical precedence to this. Yet, um, some of the response to them said, hang, hang on, hang on, you've got a problem. Because not only are you not believing in eternal generation, which is, that's a problem. But what you have done is in the vacuum that you've created in denying eternal generation, now you've placed something else in that place which defines the son's relationship to the father. Instead of being, instead of the, the thing that defines the son's relationship to the father being the eternal generation of the son. Now, all of a sudden, you've replaced that with an authority submission concept or idea. And what people um, have been suggesting ever since is that especially if you don't believe in eternal generation, you've got something then that will lead almost inexorably towards a lesser rank of the sun. Now, some of you are starting to work this through and you're maybe thinking of passages in scripture which allude to the fact that the son does submit to the father. He is obedient to the father. And you're thinking to yourself, well, hang on. I mean, isn't, isn't it really clear that the son is in some way, call it functionally subordinate to the Father. We'll, we'll get there, right? Let's follow the historical trend just a little bit further. And um, thankfully, both Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem have since 
uh, affirmed the doctrine of eternal generation, right? Which is a good thing. Um, but the, the question remains, can we refer to within sort of the, what we'll kind of define this actually in the next lecture, but when we're talking about the eternal, the eternal Trinity, okay, not, not the Trinity as we see, um, for instance, the, the Son incarnate within redemption, creation and redemption, but thinking about the Trinity before the creation of the world, did the Son submit to, was he functionally subordinate to the Father? That is the remaining question. And it's a question that we want to take up right now. Um, maybe I'll mention one other note here before we get to a bit of an answer. Um, since the time of the onset of the controversy, there has arisen a movement within evangelicalism that I think is largely good, but I think at times has been unbalanced. And it's uh, what's called the classical theist movement. Uh, and it seeks to recapture classical theism. That is the idea that um, within the, you know, the early church fathers and their understanding not only of scripture, but as they had all of their dialogues and debates, and as they took what was helpful from Greek philosophy, and how this was worked out and, and codified and systematized within the medieval age in scholasticism, in people like Thomas Aquinas, um, that we need to recapture that. We need to recapture, for instance, God's uh, aseity, his simplicity, um, all these, his, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, there, there'd be a number of other aspects of his, uh, the fact that God does not suffer, for instance, Sort of escapes me right now for whatever the reason is. It'll come in a second, probably. But there's these aspects that I believe it is right to affirm. And even if they have been downplayed in modern evangelicalism, we need to go back to them. Here's, here's the slightly imbalanced thing about the modern classical theist movement, however, that what it also does is it leans into a certain Trinitarian emphasis upon the consubstantiality of the Trinity to the de-emphasizing of the other means by which the Trinity is related. Now, if you are going to be here in our next lecture, you're going to get some more information on what that means. Consubstantiality, briefly at this point, means that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have the same essence, right? And so, because they have the same essence, then something like the idea that one could be functionally subordinate to the other doesn't sound quite right. They have the same essence. How could one be subordinate to the other? In fact, one of the strongest um, claims against eternal functional subordination that is often made, I'm going to answer this later on, is the idea that you can't have one submitting to the other because within classical theism, there's only one will of God. So one can't submit his will to 
to another. There's one will because there's one substance, one essence. I'm going to answer that in a few minutes because I think there's actually a good answer to that. Here is, I mentioned at the beginning, I think in the introduction of our entire series, that I believe that there is actually um, some ways in thinking about this subject, this modern controversy, that would evaporate a good portion of the controversy, that would build bridges between the different sides. And so here's my attempt to do that, uh, because I believe that there is some truth to the eternal functional subordination view, but I think also that there would be some things that we want to be careful of in affirming. Um, and I'll, I'll give you my suggested way of framing it at the end by way of, um, of finishing. But the, um, one of the things that the current crop of classical theists will respond to eternal functional coordination is not by only saying that, listen, there's, there's one will in God. Um, Um, but that all of the aspects in scripture that speak of the son being obedient to the father or being less than the father. So for instance, in one place in scripture, Jesus says the father, father is greater than I, uh, all of these different statements referring to the son being sent from the father, anything that would hint at a functional subordination, they believe pertains to the incarnation and to the humanity of Jesus and not to his divinity. And in fact, this is building off of Augustine. Augustine, he loved to do this. He didn't, he wasn't, he didn't love much in between these two poles. Uh, either he would say, listen, this passage is speaking of the eternal generation of the son in saying, for instance, that the son is uh, sent from the father or the son learns from the father, he would say that actually is eternal generation. Uh, and I think there's some truth to that. Um, or he would refer things to the incarnation. He didn't like anything in between. Here's the problem. The problem is that in scripture, we're forced to think of something in between. We're forced to think of the fact that the incarnation of Christ, the mission of Christ in time by which and in which he is subordinate to the Father, that that bears a likeness, that's fair, what kind of likeness, but it bears a likeness to the fact that the Son is from the Father. And I, I signal this at the very beginning by stating that it seems blasphemous to me to say that the Son could have sent the Father. Right? There's an order there. And that order then gets worked out in the missions by which you have in scripture this subordination that occurs at least within, you know, redemptive history. The question, of course, is does it occur within the, uh, the eternal relations of the Trinity? And I think that there's one thing that we have, one piece of, of, of data in the scriptures that helps immensely to answer this question. And it's the idea of the mission of the Spirit. So, if indeed 
all of the statements that refer to the Son in any way lesser to the Father pertain to his incarnation. What about the Spirit? Because the Spirit is not incarnate. And what we have in Scripture is the indication that the Son and the Father both send the Spirit. There is a sense in which the Spirit is, you want to use this language, subordinate to, or at the very least, is sent by the Father and the Son. So you cannot, therefore, based on that, you cannot refer all of this distinction, however you want to frame it, I'm going to get to a framing in a minute, you can't, if you you call it subordination, you can't relegate that completely to the incarnation. The Spirit is sent too. Now, there's a response to that that would come from kind of a, what I'll call a flat Trinitarian. Um, and, and the flat Trinitarian would say something along the lines, and, and even Augustine might fall into these lines, although there were times you'd be forced to say things that were, had sort of this, I'll, I'll use the word subordinationist, kind of flavor to it. Um, But the response would be this. Well, yes, but that pertains to the mission. Okay. So in other words, before actually sending the son to be incarnate, before actually sending the spirit after the son had ascended, before all of that, there was a plan that had to do with the plan of redemption in which, the, you know, there would be this, you want to use this word subordination, right? Or the sentness of the Son and Spirit. Now, that is true. But notice something that happens when you state that. What you've posited now is that there is this at least one middle step between the eternal relations and what happens in redemptive history. Um, and so, uh, Historically, there has been some excellent data, uh, some excellent literature, I should say, on what is called the eternal covenant of redemption that I think makes a lot of sense of evaporating a lot of the issues to do with the eternal functional coordination. And um, essentially, it is this, that within the triune God, there was a plan in order that the son would be glorified that he would go and bear the sins of a redeemed people. That was the plan. It's a plan that took place before creation. Uh, Redemption is not plan B. It's actually plan A. And it was the father that initiated this covenant. Why? Well, because the father is seen in scripture Um, as the one who plans, who initiates. And of course, this is a reflection of the eternal relations themselves. The father is the giver. In fact, he's the giver of the son. He's the one who begets the son eternally. And so as the giver, then it also makes sense that he is the initiator of this eternal covenant in which the son receives. The son receives because, well, he is the receiver of, 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 of even his, his, his being, you would say. 
and of the divine substance that comes from the Father. Again, not in time and, and at, you know, logically in his eternal generation. So, uh, a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards, many of you will know, um, actually did some excellent work on this that I don't think is, is enough, it's not well enough known. Um, it was actually published after his death. And one of the reasons that perhaps it was published after his death is because at the time, in, in the climate in which he was writing and, and pastoring, um, what he wrote may not have been necessarily well received. It might have been thought of as, um, as outside of Trinitarian Orthodoxy. It's not. But what he posits is actually there's a multi-step, um, I think you're forced to this scripturally, there's a multi-step way in which the, the natural or the Trinitarian relations of the, the giving of the Son and the recipiency of, or the giving of the Father and the recipiency of the Son bear out then in what the covenant is going to be for the covenant of, of redemption. And then how this is unfolded in the Old Testament before the incarnation proper. And then finally, how it's worked out in creation and redemption. All right. And in the, in the sending of the son and in the incarnation. So there is a, I believe there is a significant connection all the way along between these things. And so because of this, just to kind of try to summarize this whole, this whole thing, even though if somebody asked me, are, do you believe in the eternal functional subordination of the sun? This is how I would answer. I would say no, but I believe in the functional subordination of the sun eternal. Why? Well, because I want to be careful of suggesting that there is any rank between the Father and the Son, the Spirit, in and of themselves, and yet the eternal covenant is an eternal covenant. And so, before creation, before you get to Genesis, before you get to redemption, the sending of the Son, you have this relationship that holds by which the Son, in agreement with the Father, has agreed to take on this, if you want, this lesser role for the sake of his promotion within creation. Let me deal with one last thing. And that is this question that I, uh, that I mentioned about what about the, the fact that there is one will? This is often lobbed at those who believe in any aspect of eternal functional subordination. Um, there's a good answer for it. The answer is this, that the scriptures speak of the divine unity, not in just one way, but three ways. Interesting. Not only consubstantiality, in which you would say that the Father and the Son share one will, but also by means of eternal generation and the processions, such that you could say that the Son has the divine will from the Father, and he has it in a filial way. Whereas the father possesses that will in a paternal way. So, if you refer back to the eternal covenant of redemption, you would say that the plan of God is to redeem a people for the sake of glorifying the son. 
That's the one will of God. But you could also say that the son wills to receive the glory from the father in giving himself up in redemption. And you could say that the father wills to glorify his son by giving all of this to him. And there's at least one other way that we could talk about the wills. And that is uh, that in, in divine, um, what was called perichoresis or, or mutual indwelling, by which we could say that one will inheres in the other, co-inheres in the other perfectly. And if you want more, uh, more information about that, stay for the next lecture because we're going we're gonna to talk about that. But I just want to, um, I just want to pull something out by way of closing here from Jonathan Edwards. I want you to think of here in closing the glory that the Son has in redeeming you and in his reward. Right? Jonathan Edwards says this there are two covenants that are made that are by no means to be confounded one with another. The covenant of God the Father with the Son and with all the elect in him, whereby things are said to be given in Christ before the world began and to be promised before the world began. There is another covenant, that is the marriage covenant between Christ and the soul. The covenant of union, or whereby the soul becomes united to Christ. This covenant before marriage is only an offer or invitation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. In marriage or in the soul's conversion, it becomes a proper covenant. This is what is called the covenant of grace, in distinction from the covenant of redemption. But the covenant of grace is founded upon the covenant of redemption. God had a plan to unite you by his grace with Christ, to enjoy him forever by an eternal plan and covenant, Father to Son. And it is because of that, ultimately, that we are saved, that we enjoy our Christ.